are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Last week, we talked to California cotton grower Kenan Michael. So this week, we wanted to complement his story by zooming out and offering more of a bird's eye view of the cotton sourcing landscape. And here to help us with that is Crispin Agento, managing director at the Sorcery and former executive director of the Organic Cotton Accelerator. In part one of our conversation, we talked about cotton sourcing. Why are brands disconnected from cotton growers in the first place? And why does this matter? What are all the steps that cotton goes through before it lands in the retail shop as a finished T-shirt? What's the role of the merchant? What would it take to change the way cotton is sourced? Why is brands buying directly from growers is such a radical idea? We also discussed why, if there's a shortage of sustainable cotton, however that might be defined, it doesn't lead to higher prices for growers. How is risk and reward distributed across cotton supply chains? In this episode, part two of our conversation, we get into traceability. Why is cotton traceability so difficult? Why are recent bans on Xinjiang cotton so hard to enforce? What does Chris Bond think about technological developments designed to help with traceability? This takes us into another hot topic in the world of sustainable fashion: open costing. How does Chris Bond approach this within his work, and under what conditions is transparency around costs and pricing beneficial to all players across the supply chain? Is there potential for cotton growers to band together and advocate collectively, like we're starting to see at other levels of the supply chains through the Star Network? We close with a big question: How does Crispon define sustainable cotton? If you are on Instagram, please follow us to grow the conversation at Manufactured Underscore Podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. Crispin, let's talk about what's happening in the world of cotton right now. It's it's just this perfect storm, right? There's just it's a huge supply constraint. I had a a, a a mill call me this morning from Korea, South Korea, and say, "Hey, how do we how do we know that our cotton's not from Shenzhen?" And I said, "Well, do you want the do you want the the real truth or do you want the the, the not real truth?" <laughs> and they said, "Well, we want the real truth." I said, "There's no way you can you can manage this. You can go to your spinner that might be in China, and you can say them to." You know, sign an affidavit or do something to that effect. Again, a contract that says none of this cotton in your yarn is from Shenzhen. But how do you really know? And the fact is, you don't. And there's no technologies out there at this stage without huge interventions that actually can manage that. You know, and when that those T-shirts that have been taken from that cotton, you know, manufactured arrive in Los Angeles or whatever, it's not like the Border Patrol in the United States. Is going to ask that T-shirt whether or not it has Shenzhen cotton in it. The, yeah, yeah. It's it's silly. It's silly. And it's Which, unenforceable. 
you know and what, what's happening right now is that cotton now is globally is constrained you basically have taken at this point 20 percent of the global supply off of the market with the shenzhen issue and you're seeing cotton prices increase because the demand is still there it's an interesting phenomenon to the to the brand client they can't really know their cotton t-shirt is made from cotton from where so for instance U.S. might ban old cotton exported from Shenzhen, but Shenzhen could export cotton, for instance, to Cambodia or to Thailand, to another country Correct. as a, yes, as an agriculture product. And over there, it will be uh, worked out as a, as a yarn or so, fabric. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's look. There's there's there are technologies that may be able to say okay, you know biologically or you know that 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 this cotton is coming from a certain region but it's very inconclusive and it's not scalable at the at the moment um across you know billions of garments that are coming out of china in into u.s ports uh you know tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of containers and so you know the scale of things is just enormous um and then the risk of 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 that to a brand that's you know it's got a million you know, dollars worth of FOB goods that needs to sell for spring 20, you know, whatever, 2021. And then they're just sitting there and that's, you know, there's a huge product constraint. That's why the brands are suing the federal government in the U.S. right now. A lot of them over this policy because it doesn't make sense. It's not actually enforceable. It doesn't solve the issue. Um, mm. But you're right. I mean, there are a lot of things. I've talked to a number of spinning mills that are effectively spinning cotton or yarn in China exporting it and then bringing it back in as fabric to be cut and sewn, you know? So a lot of like Vietnam, uh, Thailand, Turkey, other places, they're all at full capacity right now. There are spinners that are vertical operations that do spinning and fabric that are literally have shut down some of their spinning operations or they're only doing domestic production um, for the Chinese market using Shenzhen cotton. And then they're quote unquote, bringing the yarn in to then put into their uh into their knitting and weaving machines uh but again it doesn't like you it, people don't understand you have to step inside a factory and you have to really understand these things it's not possible it literally so my, is not possible. my very technical question is you said the the supply is constrained to 20 percent so we assume the price of cotton will be increased however we know in reality those cotton could eventually Go into the market anyway. So anyway. in that yeah. So in that case, yeah. the the, co- the price of cotton will be actually remain the same there's, or there's been increase. A, there's been an in, yeah. There's been an increase in the futures price of cotton, um, but that's just more returning to normalcy after the COVID nineteen like retail freakout in terms of just investors and whatnot and looking at things. Um, it's I don't necessarily think it's a function of real constraint because if you had real constraint of twenty percent of global supply. Most, you know, and, and it's not like China can import fiber. There's quota systems, right? The government won't, they protect their supply internally. And so you can't just like, you know, import cotton. Right now, China's banned Australian cotton from being imported as lint, but that Australian cotton is being sent to, let's say, Vietnam and then being imported into China as yarn. Made even, like yeah. I said, it's making mm. it in. There's, there's no, there's no way around it. It's just, it's, and that Australian cotton is probably being blended with Shenzhen or whatever. It's just, it's, 
then it's so risky for cotton farmers to assume to make a plan of their yield, their production, right? Of Based on those news and those those forecastings, it's so well, risky. Kind of do, most of the smallholders do it by default because it's like it's their only cash crop annually, right? But you know, again, it's just it's a case by case situation, and it is risky. And I think that you know we will see. There's going to be some interesting things happening, for sure. You know, there still isn't the, the the other side of it is even. Let's just say that they solve a problem to say, okay, we're just banning all of Shenzhen cotton. We actually control it. There's not enough cotton on this planet to satisfy the demand, and it cannot get into China, where fifty percent of the world's garments are still manufactured almost exclusively vertically in country. It is as at the retail side, even at the wholesale side, it's tens of hundreds of billions of dollars in value that it can be disrupted. Right. So the EU, the EU is taking a bit more of a let's wait and see. Let's try to solve these problems where I think in the US it's much more of a political pull. And we'll see what the new Biden administration does with respect to an actual practical material solution that is that's real as opposed to just a political stunt that you know, is not enforceable. Right. Not enforceable. So what do you think about the various technologies that are being developed to look at cotton traceability? I ask because last week we released two episodes with a California cotton grower, and his take was basically like, technology is useful, but supply chain relationships are the most important part of doing traceability. Those are the types of technologies, whether it's DNA or it's luminescent pigments or it's, um, you know, other additive kind of tracers that can provide that. Again, you can add that tracer, and I've worked with a number of these technology companies, but the market will not bear the additional cost, at least right now. There's no conclusive evidence that they will. Now, we do, you know, there are examples where we've supported that and said, look, this is you know, the attributes, this is carbon positive cotton, this is organic cotton, it's traceable, you know, along the chain. And will that brand be willing to absorb those higher costs? Some brands will, some brands won't, to have that those attributes. So there needs to be more than just traceability. There needs to it's 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 a total shift in the way that cotton is sourced. It comes down to that. So maybe you know? if I were to boil it down to like a sentence is you know, technology that enables traceability needs to go hand in hand with something that allows transparency or enables transparency over. Uh, it's management systems as well. I mean, it's, but it's, 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 it's hard to say. It's like it, it, it is traceability is, or transparency is a outcome of a number of market shifts that include technology, mm -hmm. that include practices, uh, and includes, and in fact, at the end of the day, it includes an understanding of risk. Why is it that your, your spinner won't tell you where their cotton's coming from? Why is it that their fabric you know, won't tell you where their yarn is coming from? They're afraid. An, un an understanding of risk, or I would say transparency over who bears which risks. Yeah, and keep in mind though that like we do protect 
the, the market from being the market, right? Like a lot of the agreements that we'll sign with different participants in this facilitation process, we will protect their interest. And the brands might come to us and say, well, what did, what did, what are we actually paying for that cotton? And I said, well, I can't tell you unless you get written permission from that supplier to tell you what the cost is because I'm, you know, of course we know what the cost is, but I'm not going to be in a place to empower you brand to come down without, you know, that's an antitrust violation. That's now, mm-hmm. you know, intervening in, in the market forces. And so <clears throat> I said, look, if you want to know the cost of the cotton, well, I fork over cash and you'd be the direct buyer. Now, now you, you've purchased it. And you can control it and you can, when you buy it, when you pay or something with your own money, you can, you can force, not force it, but you can, you, you have much more leverage than saying, Hey, spinner, will you buy this on our behalf? And the fabric mill, will you buy this on our behalf? And, you know, cut and sew, will you buy this on our behalf? And now you're exposing all of those people to different risks in the event that, you know, you, they lose an order down the road. Right. Right. So again, you know, this is all now paper at some point i'd love to be able to build this system to be like a smart contract type of system you know where it's all integrated digitally and then that all goes to their banks and says look if any of these actors fall short of that the other the the other actor is you know made whole or there's insurance schemes along the chain like that's a future envision state but you know but but that's also part of like where con- contract in the West. If I do if I if I make a contract with a brand, I have legal boundaries or not legal boundaries. I have legal options to to to, to try to recover my losses if they were to do that. And same thing with them with me. I carry mm-hmm. insurance. I have to carry a What's multi-million dollar policy, you know, that covers me if I screw up. Right. So how do we build those into the supply chain? It's it's like it's it's almost like some kind of, well, codependence, really. And mm-hmm. and at the cut and sew level, the example that I always like to give is there's a lot of discussion between brand and the garment factory that's doing the cutting and the sewing of these garments where the 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 brand, you know, will give a non-binding forecast. So they'll say, oh, I'm going to sell 100 pieces or whatever, but it could be 20, it could be 70, who, who knows? And there's no consequences mm-hmm. to them. And then at the factory level, what that means is the factory is making decisions about how many people they're going to employ based on that information. And that really creates an incentive to, um, well, to be able to expand and contract your workforce based on the actual orders that come in, because you know that that there's likely going to be a lot of change and variation. And if, let's say, the brand forecasts, you know, 100 hours worth of shirts and then they only end up placing 80, well, if the the difference that that those 20 hours, the difference between those two figures is split, is paid, you know, 10 are paid by the brand and 10 are paid paid by the factory, it totally changes the game. And there's now a, a sort of financial codependence, which assures that, I think both actors kind of um, have shared rewards and also shared losses. And it's sort of, um, you know, on the, to, on the, yes, if we have to sink for each other or back up each other or watch out for each other, like the there's cut a, of the a code people, pants, yeah. 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 Maybe your forecast is too uh, positive and the, the brand might say, okay, don't buy materials now because we're not very sure. Buy it later if you can. 
So it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's a shared risk can change their relationship dramatically. I would say. Well, and part of the challenges is that again, you, you have to look at speed, right? Speed and 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 demand, right? Brands are reactionary. Okay, I need a hundred thousand units. Oh no, I need one hundred fifty thousand units. Oh wait, no, 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 no. Market's saying I need one hundred ninety-five thousand units, right? In the meantime, over that, let's say, you know, email that goes back and forth over a two-month period, the the supplier is trying to source fabric. There's a three-month, maybe two-month lead time from the fabric supplier, right? If the fabric supplier doesn't have what they need, there's a two-month lead time there. So you're looking at a a nine-month trajectory. Yeah. From you know, depending on the, this is what I was talking about, aligning the, the, the industry with, with, with aligning the, the, the different risk profiles. And I think that, you know, there needs to be way, there needs to be more communication around that. And open costing is a tool, but open costing shouldn't be, you know, cool. Our labor costs 12 cents and our fabric costs whatever, uh, you know, 15 cents. Yeah, it shouldn't be used to squeeze. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be used to understand output. And it's so difficult to prevent it to be abused. For instance, you have an open cost, your open, your raw material in open cost of cut and sew facility. So yeah, it's 60, 70, 80% sometimes of, of the finished good. Right. I mean, as a factory manager, I there were many times when I was very reluctant to give up information about our costs or who our suppliers yeah. were. And I, I struggled with it because I understood that in the abstract, in the big picture, this was an important thing. But I think like it comes back to codependence. If you're just asking the supplier to be totally transparent about their costs or about yeah. even their load level, how busy they are. Um, but then on the reverse side of that, with the factory, I mean, that's going to make any factory manager very uncomfortable. But as a factory manager, what I would have been looking for to be willing to give that up, so to speak, would have been transparency on the brand side about their inventory levels, things, information that would have put me in a position to be able to better anticipate their fluctuations and to therefore also be able to 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 better manage my own financial risks. Because the reality is that as a as a factory, I had zero or very little visibility over what was happening with their business. So it's somehow it's 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 it it has to go both ways and I think both sides have to give something up which probably they don't really feel totally comfortable giving up. But then that creates codependence which then ultimately if you look at a system level reduces overall waste, reduces overall inventory and yeah. will probably lead to a contracting of the supply chain which will lead to shorter lead times which is ultimately also, you know, good for everyone because then if your lead times are shorter, you're better placed to be able to respond to actual consumer demand as opposed to, well, and you're more likely to have forecasts that are that are accurate in the first place. I think that there's going to be a lot of shifts that are happening at all different tiers of the supply chain. I think that, you know, I don't know that there's going to be a, a, a watershed shift when things, I would say, normalize post-COVID. But there certainly is some deep um, memories, if you will, that will shape the perspective of things. I would, if I were a factory owner, um, again, I don't know really the, the, the pressures, but you know, I would say, look, brand, if you want this type of capacity or you want these types of products, you need to here's here's our risk, right? Mm-hmm. At least you know 
there's potential finance or other ways to share risk and share reward, right? But at the end of the day, what are we paying, you know, what are we paying our, our people? Is it a fair wage? This is how long it takes to sell a t-shirt. There needs to just be more information that is available, I suppose. You know, I don't, and it's also, it's also about intent, I think, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you measure intent and how do you, you know, I'm not talking, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time like getting concrete here, but it's like, you know, what is it? Yeah, I, it's, 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 it is tough. It really is, you know, because, you know, there's this organization I read about that's asking for like a, just across the board, 25% increase in the cost of fabric or something to have reward. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean a 25% increase in wages? And then how does that translate to FOB costs? You know, like, what is that? What does that look like? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I I have something else. It's a sort of tangentially related. But one of the things that comes to mind as I hear you talking is, you know, there has been a lot of discussion, I think, and various moves to look at like at the manufacturing level to look at sort of lateral connections across manufacturers and whether that might play a role in terms of changing the way that, you know, if garment factories worked together, whether that would then sort of be a catalyst for change in the industry. And we saw it with Transformers Foundation and the denim supply chain coming, stepping out and saying things. And I just saw in the news today that the Star Network in Asia is uh, working on something similar. And actually, through our collaboration with GIZ Fabric, we managed to do an interview with the spokesperson of the Star Network, Miran Ali, in episodes 29 and 30. So be sure to go back and check those out if you missed them. What kind of, if any, what kind of scope or opportunity or potential do you see in terms of lateral connections or uh, uh, across um, cotton, cotton farmers? Well, there's, there's, there's huge examples of that. I think that, you know, let's take smallholder context where you create cotton co-ops. I mean, um, you create, uh, you know, bring people together that creates power and leverage, right? Mm-hmm. And as opposed to every farmer out for themselves and just doing cotton, you know, if the demand is not there, then don't sow cotton. There are other crops that you can generally sow that will, you know, that are part of the crop cycle and part of the nutrient cycle that you can do. Now, now there is some might argue there's too much cotton being grown out there. But the funny thing is, is that it's all being purchased outside of about three to 4% that sits in storage generally every year. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is just conventional commodity, you know, in terms of, mill uptake versus production that, you know, organizations like ICAC, um, International Cotton Advisory Council publish. Um, but I think if you institutionalize farm groups and you give more power to farmers, they will be in a place to operate in their collective self-interest, mm-hmm. if you will, um, versus just waiting for the guy to buy my stuff because I just... I need the money and I'll take any price and I'll sell it, you know? And so, and so, you know, we have to look at those different tools that 
that, that exist in terms of building capacity and building institutional structures, I think, at all ends of the supply chain. You know, and that's scary because... And whose job is it to do that, do you think? There are a number of NGOs that are doing that. Um, fair trade, part of the fair trade international principles is to build in strong institutions so that they can negotiate that they have, you know, and not just strong institutions for like a union, but it's, you created an entity and that entity manages its own accounting and the bigger the entity can grow, it can access finance and things like that. And it becomes a company. It's a mm. co-op. It's a, it's a farmer organization. Um, and you know, and this, these models exist all over the world. And there's, there are four, four powerful cotton co-ops in the United States that have basically created that, that shift the market and they control billions of dollars worth of cotton that is needed in the sector. So they can shape policy. They can do a whole bunch of things. We've, we've created strong institutional structures in cocoa to some extent, yeah. although there's still issues of, of child labor and things like in Ivory Coast. We've created strong institutional structures in coffee. Um, yeah. Yeah. Corn, I was thinking about coffee, you know, but, especially the transitability. Yeah. But, 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 but co cotton is still as a uh, cotton is not changed in principally in 80 years. And I only say 80 years ago was when cotton farmers actually started to get paid for their cotton. It wasn't slavery or indentured servitude. And why do you think other industries have changed, but cotton hasn't? It's a good question. I think policy, I think politics, obviously that's policy, uh, and power. You know, one of the reasons I think why the global cotton price is deflated and it hasn't increased is because of U.S. policy. You know, most farmers are subsidized. And so when you're subsidized that, you know, you're, you're willing to sell your cotton at a lower price that then benchmarks and creates a reference price through which all other cotton globally, you know, have to meet to be competitive to some extent, um, or go under. And, and, uh, so that's it. I mean, the U.S. was also sued by the WTO. Uh, during the Obama administration, before the Obama administration, the Obama administration paid Brazil $300 million and had to change some of the, 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 the policies in the farm bill for that term. Now, when the Trump administration took on, all of those policies disappeared. And so it has a big impact. 100%. What's the word? There are so many different, I think, understandings or ways to define what sustainable cotton is. Yeah. And I wonder, it sounds like the way that I'm going to take a guess <laughs> that if you were going to define it, maybe you would bypass all the sort of uh, technical, um, technical aspects, you know, whether it's uh, organic or something else and would really focus on um, the financial aspect and financial sustainability and making sure that cotton is grown in a way that everyone along the supply chain can actually make a decent living off of it. Is that right or incom probably incomplete? A phrase that I often use is, if you take care of people, they'll take care of the environment. Mm -hmm. right naturally right it's about empowerment 
And so, yes, I think it starts with economics to some extent, and then it starts with defining real measurable um, changes over time, right? So then you can go to the environment and say, well, what are we looking at environmentally? Are we looking at water? Yes. Are we looking at chemical use? Yes. Are we looking at potentially soil carbon sequestration? Yes. Right? So what are those other actual indicators to, that we can measure over time? We cannot measure organic cotton or a label, right? Or BCI cotton or a label without going behind what that actually looks like. And then how do we apply those same principles across the board, across every farmer, depending on their actual ability to understand where they currently are and then shift over time to reduce or whatever that means for sustainability. I think if I were to define sustainable cotton going forward, given the climate crisis, I'd say you're either carbon positive or you're not. And you can have carbon positivity as a conventional farmer if you're employing certain agronomic practices, and you can certainly have carbon positivity or negative cotton, uh, cotton productivity as an organic farmer. And there are different risk profiles. So that, I guess, if to define that, I would say that let's look at Let's look at the value of what sustainability can do or sustainable cotton can do to contribute to the global climate crisis. But to get there, we need to empower the global poverty crisis that exists in agriculture among smallholders. And of course, you know, creating incentives for large holders that tend to be wealthy farmers. You know, these are millionaires, generally a lot of them because of land holdings that they have in the U.S., Australia, Brazil. Uh, as examples, but they also need their own incentives as business people to adopt practices that then are rewarded in the market for more sustainable outcomes. I work with a group of um, farmers in Australia um, that are carbon positive, and we're able to sell that carbon positive cotton for a 15% premium in the market because it has that credential associated with it and mills are willing to buy it because they can pass that marketing on to it's not just marketing they can pass that on to their brands and the brands are then some of the brands are willing to pay more money on yarn and fabric to have that cotton that is a model through which is what we're talking about mm -hmm. right but if but you, but 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 part of the problem is of course if this you're just a brand that's sourcing it tier one there's no you know and you're looking for a piece of paper that that allows you to market, but you, you don't actually know what's behind that piece of paper. You don't know what the cotton is until you go down to the farm, until you nominate farmers and say, look, we're going to pay more and in paying you more, we want you to do X, Y, and Z, or you know, this is what you have to do. Otherwise, what's the incentive? Why would you do anything? You know, Why would you change practices if there's nothing that's a real material reward for your own world? Organic cotton generally shirts sell for more, but the, the majority of that value is not making it to the farm, if at all. Um, and the same thing with any other sustainable product or attribute that's out there. Um, so it, it does, you know, we can talk forever, but it does force you to ask certain questions and to think, all right, what are different models that exist out there? And again, what sorcery is doing is an experiment. And it's like an experiment around, you know, a set of different practices and it's working as a business, but it's also not common. I mean, I was talking to a brand the other day and they're like, 
you you want us to go down i was like no, i don't want you. you you'll see the benefits of doing it eventually or you'll do it because you know if you don't do it now you're going to be a laggard because this is the way it's going this is the, the way forward i want i want you know i want the i want to see a system where like i want every farmer in the world to be sustainable farmers again defined by x right they're all going to be different but on that journey of improvement over time uh, but why improve when you know, there's no incentive what's the point right what's in it for me i don't care you know and that requires to bring every party to the table really every loop to the table and every player including governments as i was just thinking in india you might need the government to make sure some policies to make sure you don't have the GMO seeds get into your field of cotton or organic uh, cotton. Yeah. That's a big, that's a, that's a whole nother topic <laughs> for another time. Probably needs to. Yeah. That is um, another topic. Yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, look, and the truth is important. I think one of the things, if I'm going to leave it this, you know, conversation with anything is this, the cut and sew facilities where you guys tend to focus your folk, your time. The truth needs to come out. If we don't know what, if brands don't know what, the, I don't think that brands in general and the people, the human beings who are friends and colleagues and other people are malicious no. and they have ill intent, right? They, they, they're, they're human beings. They live, they die, they get sick. They're the same connection, right? As, as this, they work in a system that of course, you know, requires them. So we have to ask the question of like, you know, of all the people along the chain, what keeps you up at night? And have empathy and understanding for their own businesses, for their own world, for their own lives. But then also, like I said, part of that is to have the truth, like your guys kind of, you know, anonymized podcast that you've created. Right? But why do you have to have that? Why does it have to be, I don't want to tell my name to say something. It's that's silly. Yeah, because we're so afraid of punitive measures or anything for the truth to come out. But the truth needs to come out. The truth needs to come out is that in in India, because of the seeds issue uh, with organic cotton, that you have probably a 95% probability that every ounce of organic cotton in India that is sold without GMO labels as a label has GMO contamination, guaranteed. Unless you control all aspects of it, same thing in China, same thing in most other organic regions. Yeah, it's pain. You have to have the truth come out, and the truth will then lead to action, or it won't. And when there's no action, then it's like, all right, look, this isn't the business. I don't want to be in this business anymore. I don't want to deal with it. Really, what we're talking about here is systems change, and how do you get all the actors? you know, that are involved in an issue, but can't alone resolve or address an issue sort of pushing in the same direction. And I think what's really tricky about that is it, it requires implicating yourself. It requires every party at every level, I think, kind of looking at it and saying, okay, well, there are all these things that I can't control, but what are the things that I do control? And how could I do better on those things? And sort of, holding up a mirror and taking a hard look at yourself. And I, I think that that's, that's not easy. You're just such a wealth of knowledge. And I think I speak for both of us when I say that we're so, so grateful. So, so that you a lot of coffee too. Pardon? 
I said filled with a lot of coffee too, so I apologize. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise, and we've learned so much from you. Um, as you say, like this is not, this is this is a little bit outside our comfort zone because we normally a little, you know, inhabit a different part of the supply chain. But it's it's so wonderful for us to be able to kind of draw connections and make parallels between between these different parts of the fashion supply well, chain. Think about it like this. The, a farmer's brand is the gin, mm. right? In the sense of like, it's about relationships between two parties and then the, the all those relationships across the board. It's about mm. relationships and, and, and partnership and codependency. A gin can't, I can tell you, a gin can't gin unless it has seed cotton, cotton right? right. Uh, and the farmer can't farm unless he has good seeds and soil and water and things like that. So we have to look at those things and, can a factory at tier one produce product at the volumes, at the prices, and at the quality that a brand demands? And there just needs to be more openness about it. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening and see you next week.